Thank you, Lizzie. Wonderful. Well, we'll try and keep going if we suddenly get an influx. Um, but uh, we're going to try something slightly different. So um, if you're making a contribution and it's just a brief one, um, rather than wait for the microphone, I'll just repeat it so that it can be heard. Okay, if you think you're likely to kind of need 10 minutes to make your points, then we'll pass the microphone to you. Okay, so, and if, you, if it turns out to be shorter than you expected, that's fine. It doesn't matter if we've passed the microphone to you. So, um, so and I did put those questions up, so I'll ask those questions later on and I'll give, we'll give time after each of those. Um, but also, if there's another point where you want to ask a question, do feel free to do so. So that's the passage. So we are jumping the feeding of the 4,000 and um, Jesus healing a deaf and mute man. So Martin will be covering that in two weeks' time. So um, I will refer back to it a little bit, but not too much. Uh, it's been a long time since we've done one of these. So I think it was Neil who did the last yeah, one. Yeah, and that yeah. seems ages ago now um, when we were doing that. We were in Mark 7 then and uh, the Pharisees. Okay, so um, I've divided it up into three sections and we'll read those together just to start with um, as we go, not all at once. So the Pharisees seek a sign is just the description in my, my copy of the Bible. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Okay, so at this stage, um, I want to ask this question, and I didn't spot this until I started looking into this a bit more. But if you notice in the verse before, uh, Jesus, the one I haven't put on the screen, so I'm having to find it in my Bible. Uh, Jesus um, gets into a boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. So that's where he is. He's, come across, he's just gone to Dalmanutha. He gets there. He has um, exchanges three sentences with the Pharisees. And then in verse 13, which isn't in this bit, he gets into a boat again and sails off somewhere else. So he has, why does he, that's the question. I mean, this is the map, actually. Um, I found a little map, it's a bit, a bit uh, faint. But down, it gets to, I think that's it, gets to down Manutha, speaks to the Pharisees, um, has enough of them, <laughs> gets to the boat and sails off again. So, so has anyone got any kind of um, ideas here? And if they're brief ideas, I can repeat them. Where, can... Did, where, did he where had he just come from to go to Dalmanutha? So he was, he was feeding the 4,000. Now, I haven't looked at that bit oh, in a lot that. of detail, but <laughs> that was in a Gentile region, I think. Okay. I have got a better map further on somewhere. Anyway, um, yeah, it's a good question. We'll keep that. In mind. He came to the region of Dal. In verse 10, he got in the boat with his disciples and came to Dalmanutha. Yes, yes. He must have got out of the boat and got back into the boat. He does. He gets out of the boat at Dalmanutha, speaks with the Pharisees, and then gets back into the boat and sails off again, which seems, given that it takes a few hours to cross the Lake yeah. of Galilee, seems a bit of a, uh, an odd thing to do. Why, why is this conversation with the Pharisees so important? I don't know if anyone's got any... And he I'm sure it was perfectly timed. You think it was, was? It was perfectly yeah. timed. It's, it's Jesus' timing. Yeah. 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 I think that's good. Has anyone got any other thoughts? What about? I mean, I suppose. I suppose we're thinking a little bit about Jesus' relationship with the Pharisees. Oh, uh, he was in the region of the Decapolis before. Thank you. 
of the Decapolis. Yes. Good job, <laughs> That's where he healed the um, man with the, the deaf and mute man, I think, yeah. in the Decapolis. Yeah. Yes, I that man, you know, appeared when he came to the Decapolis. Yes. Yes, the de whether the deaf and mute man appeared in, in Decapolis. Yes. Yes, and I think... Oh, I see who you mean, the, the, the legion, legion, the one with the legion of demons, yes, whether he appeared and Jesus saw him again. Well, it's, it's an interesting question, that. and um, in terms of um, uh, what, what's going on here, we get a real contrast in this passage between the Pharisees and the disciples, well, we'll come on to that um, later as well. Um, so, disputes, this first verse, I'll put this bit back here, um, they, seek a dis they begin to dispute with him, which can mean confusion. Incidentally, I, have, I will have a handout for tonight, but I can email it out to everyone who's here, and I can do some copies for Sunday, but I didn't have time to photocopy it. Um, so don't, you don't have to write everything down. A, a lot of the references will be on the, on the handout. Hello, Dad. <laughs> Good to see you. Um, so there, there is a contradiction here, because it says no sign will be given to this generation. But in Matthew, there is a parallel passage... And it says this in Matthew 16, 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seek after a sign. No sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So that seems to be a contradiction. But what is the sign of Jonah? Three days in the belly of the earth. So that's about Jesus dying and rising again. So Jesus says, no, you won't see a sign, but he's hinting at his, his death. So when the Pharisees are asking for a sign, um, what are they actually asking for? They know that Jesus has performed lots of miracles. So they're not looking for a miracle, another miracle um, as such. Um, heaven is another word for God when it says uh, a sign from heaven. So they're, they're talking about Yahweh because God's unpronounceable. So whenever the Jews refer to heaven, they're, they're referring to God. Um, so they're, they're either looking for kind of some kind of apocalypse, <laughs> which shows that God is definitely here, or they might be asking that God steps in personally to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is. And of course that makes us think all sorts of things about what's already happened in, in the gospel. But the word for miracle in Mark is normally dynamis, it's not the word for sign. So when it says a sign from heaven, they're not looking for miracles. Um, yeah, um, the Pharisees don't deny he's performed miracles, but they think that Satan has empowered him, if you remember, earlier in, in, in Mark. And um, Cranfield says they're looking for outward compelling proof of divine authority. That's what they're after. They want it to be set in stone, to be completely sure. Um, also, it's quite badly translated in the New King James and in the NIV, um, and probably in other translations as well, because really this statement tails off. He doesn't say no sign shall be given to this generation, actually, in the Greek. He says something like, if a sign shall be given to this generation, and then he might have finished it with something like, may I be cursed, or something like that, or over my dead body, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. But he doesn't end the sentence, and it kind of leaves the listeners hanging, but it's quite clear that a sign is a bad move. Um, wicked and adulterous generation. And uh, I quite like the fact, just coming back to that Matthew bit, he left them and departed. In both Matthew and Mark, Jesus makes a very hasty exit after 
after he's spoken that words to them. You know, he's determined to have the last word. It's what we call a mic drop now, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a good one. Um, and in, in chapter 6, we saw how Jesus marvelled because of their unbelief. That was in Nazareth. It wasn't just the Pharisees there. And it's a very, very strong word. Where it says in Mark, um, I'm having to flick quite a lot here, where it says he sighed deeply in his spirit, the word for that is um, anestinazo, which is the only time that Greek word is used in the New Testament. It's what's called a hapax legomonon or something like that. A single use, a single use of a Greek word. And the trouble with these words is that we don't really know what they mean because they're only used once. <laughs> but in, um, in Mark 1, there's a similar kind of word where he talks to the leper and the leper says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And uh, Jesus is moved with compassion, it says. But uh, that could be translated, Jesus was actually really angry. So it's in other contexts. And Jesus might have been angry because of the way society was treating the leper. So there was a very, very strong emotion there. And again, Jesus is sighing deeply. This is like a groaning, a grief and a disappointment in his spirit that they're asking for a sign. He, he feels so uh, uh, cut up about it. Um, and he's also talking about this generation. And that is pejorative. Uh, whenever it talks about this generation, it makes you think of, you know, for example, the generation before the flood, uh, that, that every intent of their heart was only evil continuously. And um, I'm just going to adjust my timer because I hadn't started it. <laughs> Tell you what, I'll just ignore the time because I can't fiddle with it. Right, OK, but I will keep an eye on my watch. Um, yeah, and also the other evil generation was the one um, that didn't enter the promised land. So they were supposed to be God's people, just like the Pharisees, creme de la creme of God's people. Um, but yeah, they said, oh, we can't take this land. It's too much for us. And they didn't believe God. And so this is a, this is a kind of chastening message. And um, in John 12, 37, I'll flash this up because, of course, this is what the Pharisees needed. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Hebrews 11, verse 6. And in John 12, 37, although he'd done so many signs, and in John, sign means miracle. So it means something quite different in the Gospel of John. Um, he'd done so many signs, but they did not believe in him. It's worth saying, for those who haven't, aren't aware, that John has far fewer miracles in than the Synoptic Gospels. It's only got seven miracles, uh, whereas the Synoptics have loads of them. And it's partly because John sets each miracle up to specifically reveal God's at Jesus's um, identity and who he is. And Mark does that, but in a different way. And we're about to get, in a couple of talks time, when Lizzie does her session, we're about to get to the, the reveal, really, of Mark's gospel. Okay, um, and these miracles really don't help Pharisees, don't help those who are very sceptical. They only really help those who are well disposed to Jesus anyway. I don't know if um, you uh, saw the news about TB Joshua that's come up on the news recently. But if you look at all the stuff going on about, they're saying how fraudulent all his miracles were. And everyone, the majority of people, the world, wants to discredit the miraculous and, uh, and want to say, well, it's just all a fraud because they don't want to believe. And that's, that's what Jesus is grieving about, really, that particularly that his people, Jews, don't want to believe. Okay, so uh, the last thing on this verse, assuredly, I say to you, no sign should be given for this generation. Uh, that assuredly is amen in the Greek, which means 
definitely. And of course, in John, every time we get assuredly, it's, it's twice, verily, verily. Verily used to be in the AV. There are some good things about the King James Bible. I do like verily. Um, but uh, but th- th- this, this assuredly appears 14 times in Mark, but this is the only the third time, and we're halfway through the Gospel. So Jesus starts to get much more emphatic with his teaching. Particularly, he brings out lots of prophetic statements as we get towards uh, the cross and Jerusalem. I, I like this quote from R.P. Martin, and this will be on, on the handouts or emailed handouts. There is no legitimating sign save the ambiguity of the humiliated and crucified Lord. So in other words, for the Pharisees who say, give us a sign. No, you're not getting a sign. You're only getting the cross. The Jews aren't interested in a cross. A cross is disgrace. Um, but that's what R.P. Martin says. To see in his cross the power and wisdom of God is to be shut up to the exercise of faith, which by definition can never rest in proofs or signs, or else its character would be lost. So that is that um, section on um, seeking a sign. Okay, so next section. Uh, disciples do not understand Mark. I'll try, I'll try to get through all this. Um, but I, uh, normally I, I cut things down a bit more carefully. So let's read this bit. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. They did not have more than one loaf with them in the boats. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. So... Um, <laughs> We'll read the other few verses in a moment. I, I do. This is a really interesting uh, section. And there's a parallel passage in Mark. And in fact, I want us to read that through because it says a couple of things that make it a bit clearer. Matthew 16, we're jumping into it. Matthew 16. But Jesus, being aware of it, from verse 8, said to them, O oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you've brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the, seven th- of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? nor the seven loaves of the 4,000, and how many large baskets you took up. How is it, verse 11, you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So, at this point, um, and I think I should have written from, I'm reliably informed. Uh, how are the, and I'm an English teacher, so if I can't get it right, there's no hope for anyone else, is there? How are the disciples different from the Pharisees here? So, so, so and just to think about that a little bit, don't they seem to be just as blind as the Pharisees? They're going on about bread, they're worried about bread. Um, the Pharisees are obviously seeking a sign. And we're just encouraging as well, for those who came in after I said, if you wanted to say something brief, just call it out and I'll repeat it um, and then we'll pass the microphone round for, for longer comments. Quite happy for other people to speak, by the way. <laughs> or are they the same? Are the disciples the same as the Pharisees? The Pharisees want a sign. They're not the same, Gilbert says. They're not the same. They might uh, have periods of unbelief. So the disciples have periods of unbelief. Because otherwise they wouldn't follow Jesus. But they, they are following Jesus and, yes. and the Pharisees so aren't. That's, that's why they're different. One's aren't following not Jesus. Following him, yeah. And one group is following him. Okay, so, 
So that's, that's an essential difference. Thank you, Gilbert. That's a very good starting point. I think the Pharisees had set in the heart that you know, Jesus wasn't going to be sinning, was. Mm. But the disciples, purely because they're certainly a lot more ambivalence, it's sort of, yeah. yeah, or maybe not, or... The disciples are more ambivalent, yeah, and the Pharisees are definitely, yeah. no, we're not interested until you can cite, show me on the dotted line until you can show me you're definitely... Um, I think um, the Pharisees are definitely against Jesus. Yes. Stubborn. Yes. And aggressive. Yeah. And that's not what we're picking up from the disciples. They are no. for him. Yes. Mm. Yes. So the Pharisees are not against Jesus, but the disciples are for him. And of course, we, we've got to think of ourselves as the disciples in this, in this context, hopefully, rather than the Pharisees. There might be the odd Pharisee among us, or the odd Pharisaical spirit, perhaps, um, from time to time. Anyone got any other, other thoughts about that? You can always shout something out later on. <laughs> Their disciples were softer towards Jesus. And they actually, yeah, they, they actually took on the answers that, that Jesus gave them. Yes, yeah. Yeah, um, I've got a comment here from Gulick who's one of the commentators, who says the blindness of the Pharisees is total and permanent, except for honourable exceptions like Nicodemus and a couple of others. And it's contrasted by Mark with the partial and temporary blindness of the disciples. So the disciples are blind in this passage, but it's not, they're not going to stay blind. Um, and I, one of the, the title I put here, Outsiders and Insiders, obviously um, we'd hope we want to be insiders, and the disciples are insiders, but they're in danger of becoming outsiders, um, particularly with this a warning that Jesus gives, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, I just want to give this, um, feel free to jump in if anyone's confused with anything, but this is just a, this is, is long, but it's just a reminder of, because it's been a while since we've read this, of what's been going on in the passage leading up to this. And it connects, feeding is just the 5,000 and then the 4,000. So the story connects to the two feeding accounts, one of which has just taken place, and the other, which is at the beginning of a series of stories that underscore the disciples' lack of understanding. And that lack of understanding is really the next two chapters. It's all about the disciples' understanding, which does grow. Uh, the reader may recall that Mark's narrative sequence had been interrupted just prior to the first feeding by the story of Herod's execution of John the Baptist. Do you remember that? <laughs> John did that one. Um, a story introduced by reference to Herod's awareness of Jesus' miracles. He was wanting to see miracles, just like the Pharisees wanted signs. Um, thus, Herod's interest in Jesus' miracles and the Pharisees' demand for a sign enclosed the two feeding accounts. And this story, the one about the bread in the boat, refers to both Herod and the Pharisees, as well as the two feedings. So there's a lot going on in this little um, passage here. Um, and um, I just wanted to uh, comment. It says in verse 14, just before I show you that next thing. Um, oh, got to go back miles. Here we are. Not too far. It says they've forgotten to take bread. That's bread plural. And then they did not have more than one loaf with them. It's just like a singular uh, loaf. Uh, one loaf amongst 13 men, at least. It's not going to go very far. And we're not talking a a big kind of sliced loaf, we're talking probably just a small, like a roll perhaps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they have got Jesus in the boat, yes, but they seem to have forgotten that for a moment. All they're doing is probably, they've probably gone some way onto the lake and then suddenly someone says, oh, I'm feeling a bit peckish. 
we got any food? And they've yeah. only got one role amongst all of us, you know. And I suppose they'd probably feel obliged to actually share that role out. And they're not going to get much, are they? Unless, unless Jesus performs another, another miracle. I've just got one question. Yeah, yeah. Where did that loaf come from? Where did that loaf come from? Because he's just fed the yeah. 4,000. Yes. He's come to shore. Yes. Did they manage to get one loaf and that's it? Because they fed four yes. thousand. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, it must have done, must it? I guess, uh, unless some other source. I don't. It's one of those things we don't know. They did. They picked up seven baskets of fragments after the feeding of the four thousand. So that's the most obvious um, place for the loaf to have come from. Maybe they felt afraid to ask Jesus because he's just gone to the Pharisees. Yeah. Oh yeah, this generation won't receive a sign, and so they think, oh yeah, we probably shouldn't ask him. Hey Jesus, can you just like multiply this? Yes, yes. I hadn't thought of that, Finley. That's that's a really good point. That they were afraid to ask Jesus to uh, perform a miracle for them. Yeah, because that might make them. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Um, just so, just in case anyone isn't um, isn't up on their breads and doughs and things. Um, so I've got this little quote on leaven. So it's more like sourdough than yeast, um, but as it says there, leaven is a fermentation agent. Yeast has replaced sourdough today, so some translations replace leaven with yeast. So you might have that. It might be in those little ones, little NIVs, I'm not sure. Um, but they also talk about unleavened bread. Um, I got really diverted with leaven, and I realised it was off topic, so I took it out, you'll be pleased to hear. But um, leaven is unleavened bread, the first thing we think of, think of when we think of unleavened bread? Passover. The Passover. Um, and because they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. So they took the unleavened bread with them. And um, also, you could use leavened bread as a thank offering to God in the Old Testament, but you couldn't use it as a burnt offering. And Leviticus 2.11 says, No grain offering shall be made with leaven. You shall burn no leaven. Leaven speaks of doctrine. Yes, yes. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry, let me just repeat that bit, Grace. So, leaven speaks of the doctrine of the Pharisees. And the living word of God is, is the unleavened, truth. Yes, the unleavened bread. There's a verse somewhere, isn't there? The unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Yes, yes. Thank you, Grace. Yeah, that, there's, there's all sorts. You could do a whole Bible study on leaven and really explore it. Because it's a, it's a symbol... So there, are, there is the odd positive um, allusion to leaven as well. There's a parable about the kingdom of God being like leaven, um, which is where I started to go down a rabbit hole. Um, but um, also I've got a little quote from J.C. Ryle who says, talks about the small beginnings of false doctrine. So this is the point that it's tiny, but it has a massive impact. And if we're not careful, uh, wrong teachings can send us in the completely wrong direction. Ryle says the deadly power can change the whole character of, of someone's Christianity. And um, just coming back to Herod and the Pharisees, uh, it's interesting that they're linked together. In Matthew, it talks about the Sadducees and Pharisees, if you recall. Um, but in Mark 3, 6, I don't know if you remember this, this was after the man with the withered hand was healed in the synagogue. The Pharisees went out and plotted with the Herodians. So these these two groups of people are very strange bedfellows you wouldn't expect them to be connecting with each other but Jesus is causing such a stir and such a rumpus that they they're desperate to do what they can to 
to um, stop him. Okay, 8.16, they reasoned among themselves, saying, it's because we have no bread. So it says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. And uh, Morna Hooker speaks of the incredibly stupid anxiety that the disciples have about the small amount of food. And Paul Barnett says that, uh, suggests Jesus is exasperated by their vacuity uh, or vacuousness. Um, he just thinks, how dumb can these guys get? Uh, and um, boats, they don't do very well in boats, do they, in Mark so far? So every time they've been in a boat with Jesus, it's all gone wrong, and Jesus has had to tell them off the, the uh, storm, and he was, they rebuked, Jesus rebuked them for their lack of faith. And then the second where they were rowing, and Jesus walked on the water and came to them, and their hearts were hardened at that point. And I think this is encouraging. Because if the disciples are stupid, then when we're stupid, <laughs> we may, and when we don't get the point, God's making a point to us. And we're just so concerned, we're just so concerned about, um, about food or about clothes or we're worried about our job, we're concerned about this, that. Like Lizzie was saying, just the whole process, of, there's so many things to do in life and these processes can be overwhelming. And of course it means that sometimes we are really obtuse, uh, we're just completely... Um, not keyed in to spiritual things and to spiritual matters. And so we always need to keep coming back to the Lord and checking ourselves in. Our supply doesn't come from the world. Uh, they were worried about only having one loaf of bread. They were thinking of practical things. Our supply comes from God. And the kingdom comes with an abundant supply. If we're doing kingdom work, God supplies. And also, what, one of the things I love about what we're about to read is that Jesus uses a teaching gift here to, and he's very patient with the disciples. Um, I'm reading this, I started reading this as Jesus getting really cross, but I don't think he is actually. You might disagree, but let's see. Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Uh, we've got a series of rhetorical questions here, questions that don't need an answer. And uh, the references to eyes and ears remind us a little bit of Mark 4, where we had the parable of the sower. In particular, Mark 4.12, that really tricky verse that talks about um, perceiving but not understanding. And it's as if Jesus is deliberately stopping people from understanding the kingdom. But here... He wants them to understand. These are his disciples. And he says, don't you see? Don't you understand? Don't you hear? And the repeated questions echo Jeremiah 5.21 and Ezekiel 12.2. I haven't put those up, but they'll be on the notes um, if you wanted to check those. Also, he's wanting them to recall the evidence of their senses. They've witnessed who Jesus is. And all they have to do is cast their minds back. And I suppose as his disciples, as his followers, we only have to cast our minds back as well to our experiences of, of God and certainly to the Bible as well um, and I, I mentioned just now I think I've put it up Mark six fifty two. they hadn't understood about their loaves because their heart was hardened I almost missed that phrase in the middle of these questions is your heart still hardened and I think if, if we want the odd prayer to pray and we just say what shall I pray Lord soften my heart it's one of the best prayers that we can pray because it it means that we are more gentle towards others and towards ourselves and towards God as well. Um, we're listening to him then. Um, another nice thing really about this, 
this version is that it's much more interactive than the one in Matthew. So Matthew is much more readable, but this one, the disciples are actually engaged. Um, it's learner-friendly because he's activating prior learning here. This is a technical teacher phrase. I don't know if Charlotte's familiar with that. And Toby, activating prior learning? No? <laughs> so so, so the, the idea is that if, if someone's already said something um, and shown their knowledge, then they're much keener to continue engaging. So Jesus gives them easy questions, yeah? Um, oh. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they got the answer right, 12. <laughs> they could remember that. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So tick, tick. And of course, once they've answered a few things, then, then they're kind of listening and engaged. Well, yeah, do share, Grace. Do you want the microphone? <laughs> Because I think you might have bits that I don't have, probably, because I've not had. The 12 always speaks of Israel. So there was 12 baskets left over yes. for Israel. Wonderful. Which may be in the tribulation. Ah, right. And seven baskets from the 4,000. Four, four is always not universal, north, south, east, west. Uh, yes, yes. All those. So f from, for the world, seven baskets left over, and seven always speaks of the church. Wonderful. That's great. Excellent. Thank you. Um, if anyone else wants to chuck anything in, by the way, um, I have a couple of um, things here. Uh, just something about the baskets, and Grace probably knows this as well, but um, the, 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 in all the translations, it just says baskets for both the 4,000 and the 5,000. But actually, and I don't know if Martin is going to touch on this. If he does, we'll all just kind of, you know... Nod along. Yeah, yeah, nod along. Wow. But, uh, <laughs> but the, there's, the, the, in the Greek, it's two different words which are used here. And so um, the use for the five... Hang on, what have I written this down here? Okay, spiris for the 4,000... Is the, is the word for the basket. And that's more like the basket that Paul was lowered down from the wall of Damascus in um, Acts 9.25. Great, great big basket. Um, and then for the 5,000, it was kofinos, which is, uh, I probably haven't pronounced that correctly, but um, it's more like the Jewish wicker basket, like a picnic basket that they take along. So that's the Jewish one. And, and there are two, two, two good things about that. One is that well, it clarifies that the feeding the 4,000 was feeding of Gentiles rather than feeding of Jews, which goes in with what Grace is saying about the seven, the seven baskets for, for the world. Um, but also some, some nitpickers who uh, study the Gospels say, oh, no, Jesus didn't feed 5,000 and 4,000. It's the same story. It's just all kind of muddled in together. It's just a double they like saying that there are doubles of things here and there. But actually, the, the difference in the use of the words and the fact that those are repeated here shows that it happened twice, as if Jesus could only do it once. Um, and uh, I love the fact here that it talks about breaking the bread. He says, when I broke the loaves, um, because the breaking of bread... In Acts, the breaking of bread is the symbol of being one in Jesus and just table fellowship between Christians. But of course... Mark isn't really talking about it here, but it makes us think of Jesus' Jesus' body being broken. And uh, John 6 goes into way more detail about um, the bread 
and it would be a really interesting spin-off Bible study to look at John 6, 26-59 and just see how it all compares with this argument in the boat. And um, this is one verse from it, John 6, 51. I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And it does say, doesn't it, um, they only had one loaf with them in the boat. Was that loaf Jesus? Was he the, was he the one loaf that they had with him? Um, Mark 8, 21, he said to them, how is it you do not understand? This is the last verse of this section. And I've already said that lack of understanding is the big emphasis in the next couple of chapters, right through to the end of chapter 10. Um, chapters, the rest of chapter 8, chapter 9 and chapter 10. So we've got lots, they've got lots of lessons to learn still, and we're going to see them learning these lessons. Um, what I hadn't realised until today as I was looking at this is that this is another poor New King James translation. Can anyone spot what's missing in this verse? And you might have a different one in the little Gospels that are free to take if you wanted those. Um, answers on a postcard? Still. Still. Aha. Yes. 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 It's not how do you not understand, it's how do you still or yet not understand. And that's brilliant because obviously it shows that Jesus is is promising them that they are going to understand. He's just thinking, I wish you understood by now. Um, how come you still haven't got it? Um, that's the NIV, I think. Do you still not understand? Um, and I read a verse this morning in Psalm 7, and it just linked, really, because Jesus does this to his disciples. He puts us under pressure, and he and he asks us stuff, or he gets us to do stuff, and we think, God, I don't want to do that, or, you know, and it might even be through a fellow Christian, or through, through just circumstances, and God does this, if we're following him, it will happen, um, Psalm 7, 9 says, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, that's like the Pharisees, but establish the just, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds, and that's what he's doing to his disciples here, and I've got a little quote from Paul Barnett, about to move on to the blind man healing. Uh, He just says um, in his commentary, we the readers sense the quickening pace of the story. Um, A climax has been reached at this point. Um, He says, how do you still not understand? And we don't see any evidence that they've understood. It's just, it just just leaves it hanging there um, at this point. Um, He says, but we're also challenged, Paul Barnett, from the first sentence we've been told who this man is. Mark 1.1 says, Jesus is the son of God. He is the Christ. But we've watched the twelve groping hopelessly to identify Jesus. And all the while, Mark's made his identity known to us. But do we know who he is? Or have we eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Jesus is asking us the question that he asked the twelve. Do you still not understand? So, uh, last section. How's everyone doing? (laughs) I think there's another question coming up in a minute. Let's read, we'll read the miracles through um, first. Then he came to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the town. And when he'd spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his eyes on his hands again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Okay, so I'll put a question here. 
why did Mark include the healing of the blind man at this point in his gospel? Um, just to... Anyone got any thoughts as to why did he include this healing of a blind man at this point? Because they were blind themselves. The disciples were blind. Because the disciples were blind. Because it says, it says, he says in verse yeah, 17, um, heart is still hardened, yeah. but their yeah. heart was hardened at the feeding of the 5,000. And then it's still hardened, it must be still hardened, when it's yeah. got to the 4,000, and it's yes. still hardened. Yeah. Yes. Yep, thanks, Gilbert. Can <laughs> you think of any other... Any other um, any other thoughts about healing of a blind man at this point? It specifically says, do you have eyes and fail to see? Yes. So it's comparing to literal. Yeah, thanks Chris. Yeah, it says, it says, do you have eyes but fail to see? It's that direct link between the figures. And it's not in the other Gospels, this. Um, the, the placement is Mark's placement of this happening. It's worth being aware that I don't want to um, tread on Lizzie's toes, but straight after this bit, Peter does see, so metaphorically, so because he sees who Jesus is in verse, um, which is almost the most important verse of the uh, gospel, uh, verse 29, you are the Christ. And so, um, does the, is this healing different to the other miracles? Has anyone got any thoughts about that, the healing of a blind man? He doesn't receive his sight straight away. So does that link? Is that important? The disciples saw eventually. Yeah. The disciples saw eventually. Yeah, that, that, that Do you still not understand? Yeah, yeah. Which has the problem. Getting there, but not quite, yes. Getting there. <laughs> Try harder, yes. Um, yeah, brilliant. I mean, that, there, aren't, there aren't any accounts in the Old Testament of, of blind eyes being opened. There are other miracles, raisings of the dead, but no one gets their eyes opened in the Old Testament. And the Jews saw it as a harder miracle than raising the dead, possibly. They certainly saw it as an extremely difficult miracle to perform. And um, there's no one, no one's, oh, what have I just done? No one's eyes have been opened in Mark so far. Jesus hasn't healed any blind people. It doesn't say that he has. I thought, does it just like hint at it anywhere? But it doesn't. It just says he heals the sick in various places. Um, it must have done in the other Gospels. It does. John asks, his disciples come, and he, Jesus says to his yes. disciples, the blind see. The blind the see, walk. the lame walk. Yes. But I think Mark's done this very deliberately. Uh, to, 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 to save the, the blindness until this moment where the disciples are suddenly going to gonna see. Um, I, judge, I, I won't say much about Bethsaida. I think I've got a map here. Um, it's, not a, it's only a clipping of a map, but Bethsaida there, that's Galilee. Bethsaida at the top of Galilee there. Um, so, and Jesus was there for the five, feeding the 5,000 just outside Bethsaida. So he's come back to Bethsaida now probably just for this man, it seems. And um, touch is important, isn't it? It says he, he, um, he begged him to touch him. Like the uh, paralysed man in Mark 2, his, someone's brought him to Jesus because a blind man wouldn't have known how to find him. Grace? Um, it 
No. So spittle has healing properties. So it wasn't a gross thing to, for Jesus to be spitting. Okay, thanks, and, um, Grace. Mothers often uh, spit and apply their spit to their Yes, wounds. yes, They're yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mothers often spit on, on children. In fact, I did look up because I was I was thinking about this myself, and I did find a little quote which said that. Um, I'm looking for this. Yes, this is a medical article published. A medical article published in 2019 says this: saliva amasses an infinite wealth of beneficial, protective, and healing properties. There are actually loads of proteins and all sorts of antibodies and things in saliva, so it is extremely good. Um, has anyone here managed to um, heal blindness using saliva? Um, okay, so it might be worth, might be worth a try. Worth a try. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's just a medical advance that hasn't happened yet. Um, I'm just trying to get back to my point here. Okay, um, so yeah, and of course, as I'm sure you all know, um, if you were blind in New Testament times, in, G in Jesus' times, you, all you could do was beg. You, you couldn't earn a livelihood. And so the blind were desperate to get healed. There were lots of itinerant healers around and lot in, in Jesus' day, and, but obviously if Jesus was there, they would have come to him we get we get blind Bartimaeus it's the final miracle in the gospel in a in a little, a little bit of time and he he called out um, but I think it is interesting coming back to what Gilbert was saying about the blind see that this prophecy is being fulfilled the Pharisees are saying give us a sign show show us who you are and the Pharisees aren't there in Bethsaida we can assume um, but Isaiah 35 5 the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. This is a messianic prophecy. Didn't happen anywhere through Old Testament times. So we know when the eyes of the blind are being opened, we know the Messiah has come. It is, it is a sign, um, in spite of what Jesus says. Um, and then here, uh, it's lovely, I think, that he leads him by the hand and, and he puts his hands on him. So Jesus' hands a sensitive instruments of healing. Jesus' hands are, are beautiful. And it would have, he would have been assertive with a man as well to, to lead him. He'd have had to have been confident with him. And the blind man would have had to have thought, oh, I can trust this person. Blind folk, I guess, are accustomed to being led and they have to trust other people. Why does he lead him out of the town? <laughs> Has anyone got any thoughts on that? Get away from the crowd. Why would he want to get away from the crowds? To be uh, more focused. Yes, yes, actually, he's interested in this guy. Yeah, he's not, he's not come for the crowds. Um, he did something similar, didn't he, um, when they put the relatives out? Yes, with Jairus' daughter. daughter. Yeah, it's the same sort of thing, isn't it? Yeah, really? yeah. Is it getting rid of unbelief? Yeah. 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 Yes, sorry, I've just suddenly thought that should have been on the microphone. Yes, but um, yeah, this, this is maybe a miracle for, for the believers, or this is for the insiders, isn't it? This isn't for the outsiders. This isn't a show. Um, I've got quite a nice quote from Rowan Williams. I don't know what you think about Rowan Williams, but he, he ha he's written quite a little, good little book called Meeting God in Mark, and um, he says that Mark is a gospel about relationship, um, 
it makes no sense outside the relationship that the writer and potential reader may have to its central figure, which is Jesus. Take Jesus out of the gospel, it just means nothing. Of course, you cannot have a relationship with sheer arbitrary power. A saviour who walks through Galilee and Judea, healing and doing wonders at random, would not be somebody who invited relationship. He's talking generally about Mark, but I thought this applied quite nicely to this blind man. Such a saviour might invite wonder or admiration or bafflement, but not necessarily trust. Mark is treading a delicate line here with much subtlety. He wants us to start from the two basic insights. It's not miracle that is the unique or special thing about Jesus, but miracle itself, when it occurs, involves trust and relationship. It's never a kind of magic or a display of power and control. Um, and I think that's quite powerful, really. Um, and I, I think it must have been an amazing experience to have been blind, to be led by Jesus, and then to have the spittle on your eyes, and then, and then to, start to, to start to see. And it seems that he probably wasn't born blind. Because, sorry, <laughs> when you, when you oh, look at it, he says, I see men like trees walking. So how did he know what trees look like? So, so the blindness must have been, you know, some kind of illness or something like that. Um, okay, I'm just checking this. And yeah, so, so this question then, um, which you just saw, why was the healing of the blind man gradual? And we touched on this, but has anyone got any other thoughts about that? Why didn't he do it straight away? Ruth, you looked as if you were about to say something there. <laughs> I like it hugely because like, we're praying for people a lot, aren't we? Yes. And not instant things happen. No. So I would encourage people, but even Jesus, yes. um, when we prayed for this guy, yeah. he firstly saw tree as men as trees walking. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, so yeah, I find that encouraging, very encouraging, that it's gradual. Yes, it is. Another aspect could be from... Um, maybe the, the blind man didn't have any belief or trust. No. It wasn't him that asked. No, no, it wasn't. It was the people yes. that asked for his eyes yes. to be open. Yes. Maybe he just didn't believe Jesus yes. could do it. No. Um, Jesus took him to a place where it was quiet mm. and did it, you know, gradually. Gradually, yes. Yeah, so there's, yeah. That, See, in that first, when he opened his eyes, he could see men walking as trees. Yes. It gave him hope. Yeah, that so something was going to happen. Believe, believe that, that something would happen. That this could be a miracle. Yeah. yeah. I find it interesting that it, it happens in two phases, really. Mm. And uh, I find that interesting for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> so it happens in two phases. Yeah, it happens in two phases, which I find interesting for all sorts of reasons. Um, what it speaks to me of is, of course, that when they first met Jesus, that was one phase. Mm. The next phase really is when Jesus died on the cross. That's yeah. when they really began to see. The other thing that I wonder about this is as well, is that, um, you know, maybe it speaks of Jews and Gentiles, you know, that blindness is lifted to different phases. But I, I yeah. just find it interesting that, that it's two phases, yes. you know, two yes. steps, yes. which attracts my attention. But I haven't got yeah. to the bottom of it yet. yeah. Thanks, John. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few more things. I haven't got uh, an immediate answer to that, but um, he uses two things. Jesus uses spit, spittle, and he lays hands. And it's interesting to compare this with John 9, 
the amazing healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, the man who was born blind, because there Jesus spits on the earth, makes clay, puts it on his eyes, and then tells the man to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So that again, um, there's kind of a two-phase thing. It's a little bit like um, the healing of Naaman, who had to go and dip seven times in, in the Jordan. So if we're thinking about how God heals, obedience, of course, is a key. And does there have to be a reason? If God tells us to do something, we just, we just do it. And we know that, that, like Beryl says, that the first sign gave hope to, to the man who had no, no reason to think that Jesus might heal him. Where it says, um, uh, do you see anything? Um, he asked him if he saw anything. But that's the only place in, in the Gospels where Jesus asks whether a healing is working or not. <laughs> Nowhere else, because everywhere else it just happens just at once. Um, so that's unique in this passage. And it does make me think that this it, it, gradual healing is really meaningful, has a lot of um, meaning in it. And also, um, where Jesus lays hands on him again, uh, Jesus doesn't lay hands on people twice. He only needs to do it once in every other instance. But here he lays hands on him twice. And perhaps, as Beryl says, it was to do with the man's faith growing. Um, and of course, uh, we've already said the disciples only see dimly. They don't get what's going on. Um, and he, even though Peter will confess soon that Jesus is the Christ, he straight away says, no, Lord, you mustn't die on the cross. Don't be stupid. What are you talking about? Um, he doesn't understand that Jesus is going to have to suffer. And this uh, miracle, just like the healing of the deaf and dumb man, which I've not gone into too much because Martin's still yet to do that, neither of those are in Matthew or Luke. The, the, the miracles only appear in Mark. They're unique to Mark. And maybe it's because of the spittle. No, Grace was saying about um, it not being a disgusting thing, but it was seen as an insult, obviously, to, well, to spit at someone would be insulting. Always has been, I think, as far as I know. Um, oh, there are some cultures in which spitting is acceptable. I'm just thinking as I speak. But, but yeah. Um, um, but it also implies this gradual healing that Jesus has to do it twice. It seems to imply that Jesus' power is, is limited somehow. He didn't have to do it twice, no, but he, he could have done it straight, done it straight away. Yes. There was obviously a purpose to yeah. it. Yes, maybe it would have been too much for the for the man. Is, um, this is the first time that someone um, who has been blind has, is to see. In in Mark. Yeah. Yes. And in the New Testament, or not? I guess. Well, I get, uh, um. It depends chronologically where it falls yeah, yeah. with the other healings, but it's, it I think, first, yes. Then, you know, this is emphasis on it. Absolutely. Uh, back to Isaiah yeah. 35. Yes, yes. You know, this is yeah. so important. Yes, you know, yeah. Not a flash in the pan. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, so important. And actually it's interesting that at the end of this section he says, don't tell anyone, which yeah, yeah. appears to be keeping it quiet still. But this is the last time Jesus says this to anyone. Yeah. Because all the way through, Mark, we've been saying, "Oh, keep this quiet, keep this quiet." But there comes a, the moments coming where Jesus is now revealing who he is. You know, there's the triumphal entry into Jerusalem and, and things like this. And it's also worth saying um, this bit. It's 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 better translated in other versions. Makes me wonder why I'm using New King James, to be honest. But I still like New King James. But in um, it says in verse 25, his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, he saw everything clearly. So there are three clauses there. And um, his sight was perfect. It's, that's the emphasis. So uh, 2020 vision is kind of the meaning of the original there. 
Um, okay, uh, I think I'm nearly done actually, but it just says, I've got a quote from Rome Williams. Why does Jesus keep these miracles quiet? Why did he say don't go into the town? And perhaps it's because he only really came there for, for this blind man and he, he didn't want to stay and do more things there. He needed to move on because um, they would have known him well in Bethsaida because he fed the 5,000 there. Um, but Rome Williams says, maybe this is Jesus saying, I know I do miracles, it doesn't matter. How often do I have to tell you it doesn't matter? Don't pay attention to the miracles. That's not, that's not the important thing. I do miracles because I come across people in need and my heart goes out to them and I meet their needs. But that's not why I'm here. You know? And, um, and I, I've just got a quote here as well. Uh, men like trees walking. I love this phrase, men like trees walking, which is so suggestive. And um, there's no better picture really of this gradual healing of becoming a Christian and suddenly seeing who Jesus is. A bit like what Liz was saying yesterday, she shared her testimony, you know, of uh, coming from darkness into light. Mm -hmm. And I got a quote from J.C. Ryle, who, it's not on the slide actually, but he says, it's like the man before us, they first saw men as trees walking. Their vision is dazzled and unaccustomed to the new world into which they've been introduced. It's not until the work of the spirit has become deeper and their experience has been somewhat matured that they see all things clearly and give to each part of religion its proper place. This is the history of thousands of God's children. They begin with seeing men as trees walking and they end with seeing everything clearly. And so that was the journey the disciples go on and that's the journey that each of us go on. And isn't it, isn't it wonderful just to... And obviously we'll see clearer still. We've still got more clarity to gain but but we've we've come through to to salvation and um if you can stand it i'll just quote rome williams just at the end because i quite like this as well mark's deep skepticism about relying too much on miracles his careful coolness about including too much teaching that might distract us into having interesting discussions about jesus interesting ideas shows us a jesus who not only brings about regime change in the world in which we live but a Jesus who changes forever what we can say about God. Let's just pray, I'll just pray briefly, Lord. I just thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus, Lord, and that he opened the eyes of the blind, and that you've opened our eyes to who you are and to what you came to do, Lord, to rescue us, to save us, Lord. We thank you that this story is gradually unfolding in the gospel, Lord. So bless each of us tonight, Lord, um, and just continue to speak to us, Lord. Um, continue to open our eyes, Father, and encourage us, Lord, that when we feel um, stupid, when we feel we're not getting it, Lord, when we don't understand what you're doing, Lord, when we don't seem to be kind of in the, in the flow, Lord, that, <laughs> that the disciples were like that as well, Father. So thank you that you're patient with us, God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Don't think Jesus is an unassuming person. So often in the miracles, he says, go your way. Don't tell anybody. Yeah, yeah. He's not, I just said he's not drawing attention to himself. He's just... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's not come for fame, has he? He hasn't come for for people to be uh, for him to be standing on a stage or anything. Yes. Yeah. He's an unassuming person. Yeah. That's good. There's another passage in John. Yes. The man. Can you use the mic, Grace? Oh, mic.
In John, it speaks about the blind man in Jerusalem. Yes, yes. And Jesus again spits on the clay. Yes. The clay on his eyes and he mm. sees. Mm. So there's two of these ones using the spittle. Yes, there is. That's interesting. Yes, yes. And, and the spittle in the... Um, and the one that we haven't, that we've jumped over, the deaf and uh, mute man, mm. is also healed with spittle in his ears, I think, or on his tongue. Um, his tongue, his tongue, yeah. Thank you so much, Ben. That's very <laughs> lively and enlivening. Um, are there any more questions or comments from anyone? Oh, no, please. Yeah, because it would be heard on the... <laughs> I was thinking that... The disciples may not have understood it at the time, but I was reminded of the ten days when they're in the upper room. They would have gone through every one of those miracles, the feeding of the five, the feeding of the four. They would have ruminated over and over, and yes. they would have been really convicted. So it's a means to an end, yes. not an end in itself. And it's the other one is they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And it's good to remind ourselves as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Um, the thought about um, Herod and the Pharisees um, getting together. You spoke about that, ben, yes, didn't you? Yes. Herod was a king and the Pharisees were like priests. And so they would have felt very threatened yes. by this personage who... Yeah. Potentially a king yes. and a priest. And a priest. Yes. So, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. thanks. When I was reading it earlier, th a thought came to me, how, as you were saying, about how, how dumb the disciples were. Not to, and I, I was encouraged by the fact Jesus said to Thomas, blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. So we can yeah. always, as we... We haven't seen, at least I haven't seen Jesus personally. Uh, we're, we're, we're blessed, praise the Lord. And also, yes. um, uh, the other thing that occurred to me was, uh, as you were saying, Jesus seemed to be getting exasperated with the disciples. Uh, well, I mean, don't you understand? You know, is it, but in one way, he must have known that was, <laughs> with his foreknowledge as, as God, he must have known that's what they were going to do. But he's still, in his humanity, he's still... That exasperation, or, or um, so sighing with deep sighs, thinking, you know, why can't they get the hang of it? Mm. Sort of thing. Yes, and in fact, I think maybe uh, that was Paul Barnett I quoted talking about exasperation. But I think probably he was quite calm with the disciples. Um, Rob, I'm not sure he was exasperated, but I think he was using those repeated questions to stir them up to think, um, as as a kind of gifted teacher. An yeah, another thought yes. that occurs to me, but only because I'm studying the next passage in Mark, <laughs> is that um, the reason why he says, um, don't tell anyone, yes. is that there's a timing of everything and yeah. he doesn't want the Romans um, getting there too quickly mm. and putting an end to it all. So. Of course. Yeah. I only know that because I've been studying it. Ready for <laughs> 